0: Hey guys, welcome to another episode of our Explanation Staff Edition. Today, we're going to be going over the third type of rodenticide. We're going to be talking about cholecalciferol toxicities. That is quite a mouthful, right? Interestingly, cholecalciferol is actually the chemical name for vitamin D3. Vitamin D3, as we know, can be found in the sun, but it's also found in lots of over-the-counter varieties of vitamins. And in small doses, like when we go out in the sunshine, it's okay. And when we take our small doses and our vitamins, it's okay. But high doses then become pretty problematic. So today I'm going to talk about specifically vitamin D3 rodenticide because I was doing the rodenticide trio there. But this can also happen just when pets get into vitamins as well. I've talked about this on the other rodenticide podcast, but rodenticide started out as warfarin, which is one of the anticoagulant or coagulopathy rodenticides, causing them to bleed out. Then they started making scarier anticoagulant rodenticides. And then they made the bromethylene, which was the neurotoxic rodenticide. And then now we have this cholecalciferol, which is the vitamin D toxicity rodenticide. So as far as the baits go, we talked about how pretty much all the baits look the same. And this is the same thing now. These baits can be as a block. They can be blue or green, just like all the other ones. They could be um, as a soft block. They can be as pellets. So really, they can come in any form. And the problem with these as well is that there's different concentrations of it. So when people call in, it is super important for receptionists to please ask them to bring in the box, or if they have a receipt that has a SKU number, or if they bought it on Amazon, that they can find it on Amazon for us. We need to be able to have some absolute proof that this is what it is because, unfortunately, all the boxes look the same. A good example of this is Tomcat. So Tomcat, unfortunately, what they do is they make the exact same packaging, The only thing that is different is just the active ingredient at the bottom. It's just one word that's different. Literally everything else is the same. So there's no way for us to know what it is besides having that box. And if people don't know what it is, then we have to treat for all three of the different types of redenticides. So super important when they call in and say that they've gotten into rat bait, please ask them to bring in that box. So let's talk about coliciciferol and what it does to the body. We actually have to know a little bit about what the body does with vitamin D3 normally just to know what it's what's going to happen. So vitamin D3 is also known right as cholecalciferol. It wreaks havoc on the body. It's absorbed by the intestines and then into the bloodstream. It travels to the liver where it's then converted or changed into another molecule that's called 25-hydroxycholecalciferol, also known as calcifediol, and then it travels from the liver then to the kidneys where it's converted again into calcitriol. The majority of this happens in about 48 hours to 96 hours, so basically two to four days. And naturally, this is what your body does. It goes from the intestines into the bloodstream to the liver, gets converted, goes to the kidney, gets converted again, and then it can go to the cells and stuff that actually need it. And this form of vitamin D, the calcitriol, is what actually helps to make sure that our calcium and the phosphorus in our pets is in the correct amount in our body. That's what the signal is to tell your body to either absorb calcium and get rid of phosphorus or the other way. And when it gets too much of that, that's when we have a problem. That's when it wreaks havoc on our body. Mm-hmm. So too much vitamin D3 or cholecalciferol can cause too much calcium and too much phosphorus to be absorbed from the intestines. That causes an increase of calcium from the kidneys as well. And that can also cause the bone to be destroyed. It's going to pull calcium out of the bone because that's where the majority of our calcium is stored is in the bone. And then the body will put that calcium into other places because it's like, well, I've taken out all this huge amount of calcium that I need. What am I going to do with it? And then it starts putting into places that it shouldn't. So that can be things like the soft tissue. So like in muscles, it can be in the skin, like underneath the skin, you'll find these things called calcinosis cutis under the skin. They can put it into the kidney. They can put it into organs and you'll just see like random places that have calcium in them, or they can put them in their lungs, causing problems with their breathing. Like it can be pretty bad. So how much cholecalciferol is actually toxic? For clinical science to occur, doses are pretty small. This is 0.1 mg per gig that they have to get into. So a block usually contains about 10.5 to 21 milligrams of colecalciferol in it. So that means roughly a 60-pound Labrador would have to ingest about 3 milligrams, or a third of that 10.5 milligram block or a sixth of a 21 milligram block. Can you imagine for all of those labs out there that just being like, okay, I'm just going to eat the sixth of a block? right? That's not going to happen. Like They're going to eat the whole block. And if it's a chihuahua, that means they only have to ingest a very minuscule amount, like just pieces of it to cause a problem. If we're talking about like the pellet form of it, they would only have to ingest about half a tablespoon for a 20 pound chihuahua to cause a toxicity. And I know that seems really fat for chihuahua, but think about how many chihuahuas that we have for 20 pounds, right? All right. Plus it can take like weeks to even months before all that toxin is completely out of the body. When we talk about things like our half-lives, we talk about how there's this toxin that's in the body. And let's say if it's 10 milligrams, it's in the body. It's going to take for this one, it takes almost two weeks. So take two weeks for that 10 milligrams to now become five milligrams. Another two weeks for it to go from five milligrams to two and a half milligrams. Another two weeks for it to go from two and a half milligrams to 1.25 milligrams. It takes a long time for it to come out of the body, unfortunately. So real quick, like if somebody does get into rat bait, we do want to have them come down immediately. Like I said, have them call ASPCA or PEPOS control if we don't know exactly which one, or if they have the box, sometimes we're able to calculate those doses on our own. It depends on which ones and what kind of symptoms we're seeing from the pet but have them bring the pet and the box down immediately if they know that they had gotten into it. People will ask for the receptionist, can we use hydrogen peroxide? So I've gone on this tangent before, but hydrogen peroxide is great for when you can't get anywhere. Let's say people who are out in the middle of nowhere and they're like, it's going to take me three hours to get there and I know my dog ate it an hour ago. I'd say, yeah, give them the hydrogen peroxide so that way we can just get them to vomit but they still need to come down if that's the case. So they should make them vomit and then bring them to the vet hospital immediately. Otherwise, people who are just like at home and don't want to bring them in because of the weights and all these other things, right? Hydrogen peroxide can cause some pretty bad things. I've definitely seen people who have overdosed them on hydrogen peroxide. I've seen people who have given their pets aspiration pneumonia on giving them hydrogen peroxide. I've seen ulcers created from hydrogen peroxide it's not a benign drug, it can actually cause a lot of problems. Even if they do make them vomit at home, they still should come into the clinic. One other thing is somebody had called in once and said, hey, can I just give activated charcoal to make them vomit? And no, activated charcoal does not make them vomit. Typically after we've made them vomit, we'll usually give them some sort of anti-emetic, means we're going to make them not vomit anymore by giving them sirenia. so we stop their vomiting afterwards. And then we'll typically give them Activated charcoal. So if we know that they got into it, we've gotten to the pet within four hours and made them vomit. Well, you should just give them one dose of activated charcoal. What it does is it binds all of that toxin, or at least as much as it can, and it tries to help push that toxin out faster. And then we'll likely give them like fluids under the skin, also check their blood work. We do what's called baseline blood work. So blood work just at the beginning so that we know what their blood work looks like before the vitamin D3 or colic acid for all toxicity has had a chance to work yet. And then essentially just have them come back every 24 hours for three days. So we can make sure that those calcium levels and phosphorus levels and kidney levels all stay the same. If everything's normal by that 72 hours, that three days, then they should be good after that. We shouldn't have long-term effects from it and they don't have to be hospitalized from it. So that is literally best case scenarios. They know they got into it. We've gotten to them very quickly and now we're able to send them home. Let's say they ate just a little bit more and they're not quite showing clinical signs yet, but they ate quite a lot. Then we may be giving them activated charcoal for three doses. So instead we make them vomit as much as we possibly can. We'll give them medication to help stop the vomiting. And then we're going to want to ideally hospitalize them on IV fluids. So the reason why, and this is really important for like our treatment technicians and also for our hospitalized technicians, is to know why we do this. So the reason why is because when we give activated charcoal, it can cause a hypernatremia, which means that their sodium can go up pretty quickly. We want to know that their sodium levels are normal before we give them the next dose of activated charcoal. So unfortunately, it will cause brain swelling, And if we have brain swelling and we have things like our kidneys are not functioning well, that can be a deathly combination. So we want to make sure that before we give that next activated charcoal dose, that we've checked the sodium and that the sodium is normal. we'll still do other things like performing our regular blood work. So we want to perform the baseline blood work, and we're still checking it every 24 hours for three days, just like we would if they had gone into a lower dose. And then... People will ask sometimes like why we can't send home activated charcoal. And that was the reason why their sodium can become too high. We won't know what's happening. And unfortunately, that can lead to death if that's the case. So we don't want to send home activated charcoal to them. But if they do well, we'll usually hospitalize them for just 24 hours, maybe sometimes even just 12 hours, depending on how they're doing. And then send them home knowing that we're not going to send home any other charcoal. They're just going to be coming back every 24 hours for three days to make sure that they are doing okay. We'll also usually have them go home with a medication called cholestyramine. I know it sounds a lot like all right, right? Sorry about all those confusing names, but cholestyramine, what it does is it's actually a human medication and it can be found at any human pharmacy with a prescription, or we should be carrying it here. I'm pretty sure that we have it, but some hospitals will carry it so that way you can just give it immediately. What it does though is that it helps to bind the reabsorption of the toxins. So now when you think about when you've eaten your lunch, your thought process is that you've eaten your lunch, it's gone into your stomach, goes through your intestines, and it passes out into your colon as stool, right? That's actually not what happens. So when it's in the intestines, it's absorbing lots of nutrients and going through your body, going to the liver to kind of like check to see like where to, to break it down into whatever product it needs, and then it goes back into your circulation to go to wherever it needs to go, and then goes back into your intestines if it doesn't need it. So what cholestyramine does is it binds and holds on to certain toxins. So that that way, it cannot get absorbed through the intestines and then go into the liver. This circulation of going from intestines to liver, back to intestines, back to liver, back to intestines, back to liver, that's called enterohepatic circulation. And it's there to try to help make sure you can keep as many nutrients as possible because maybe you didn't eat enough vitamin A for that day. So now your body needs to recycle the vitamin A by putting it back into the intestines and then pulling it back out when it needs it. So this cholestyramine makes it bind on a certain toxin so that way it can't re it doesn't it doesn't understand that there's that toxin that's in the body or in the intestines and then it can't reabsorb it. Otherwise, that's the big problem is they just reabsorb it over and over and over again until it pulls all the calcium and phosphorus back out of the body. Cholestyramine is just kind of like giving it this giant barrel, and being like, no way, you're not getting pulled back into this intestines and you're not getting pulled back into circulation to go to the liver. You're staying in the intestines. You're going to get pooped out. Okay. So real quick with the cholestyramine, it tastes terrible. It comes as a powder. So you do want to mix it with some sort of liquid that's kind of offset that bitterness that it has. Usually something sweet like apple juice is a great thing to put it with. And then they're usually going to take that medication every six to eight hours for about three to five days. So if we reach that three-day mark, the blood work is normal, then they're probably going to be okay. So what happens though when we don't know if they've gotten for all? What kind of symptoms are we going to look for? Like our other rodenticides, there is no test for this. Unfortunately, there's nothing that I can send out or nothing that I can test in-house that's going to say that that's what it is. You can potentially send out for a necropsy, four different types of toxins. I talked about that with Dr. Watson. You, know, you can find out if they did get into colic acid for all, but unfortunately, after it's too late. So really, we can only go by clinical signs, the blood work, and just knowing what's on the property. So if you see some dogs that show clinical signs, you should always ask them, is there any way they can get into a toxin? Here's the problem with the clinical signs too. They're very vague. So it's lethargy, weakness, not wanting to eat, vomiting, drinking more than usual, urinating more than usual. So we might be thinking of like a kidney problem, or we might be thinking of a urinary tract infection for all of our little Many vets out there who are doing triage, those are like all the things that you're going to be thinking of. Is it parvo because it's young? Is it neoplasia or cancer because it's old? But toxins should be on your list of things to ask for because this could even be things like grip toxicity. It could be for all toxicities. So you want to ask if there's any possibility of those things as well. On our physical exam, like really the only thing that we're going to see is that they're dehydrated and that's about it. Maybe if it's been long enough, you'll feel like that little firm mass under the skin, that metastatic mineralization or uh, deposits of the calcium under the skin. Otherwise, that doesn't sound too terrible, right? You're like pretty vague signs, vomiting, lethargy, weakness, not a big deal. They may just be a little dehydrated. It doesn't sound that bad, right? But unfortunately, it's what's going on inside the pet that's the big problem. So we would be talking to the owners about doing blood work because we want to make sure that their calcium level is normal, their phosphorus level is normal. But remember I told you it takes about two to four days for that to happen, like to see any changes, any clinical signs. So if they come in at the very beginning, let's say they come in at like 24 hours, they come in at two days, those blood work changes may not be there. But by day three or four, those blood work changes are going to be there. So when people get upset about repeating blood work, this is the important reasons why is because people are like, we just did it, but they can change so quickly. Within 24 hours, they can change. For certain types of parameters, they can change within minutes. So we want to make sure that we can repeat the blood work if necessary. And for you to be able to explain to them why we might need to repeat the blood work because they change so quickly. So now let's say we do the blood work, the things that we're going to be looking for, like I said, are really high calcium levels and really high phosphorus levels and potentially even elevated kidney values. Even then, we still have to think about other differentials, things like cancer if they're older, chronic kidney failure, hyperparathyroidism, which I'll do in another talk, super interesting, or them getting into vitamin D3, right, the actual vitamin itself, and then For cats, we can also think of this as a potential differential is called idiopathic hypercalcemia. It just means for some reason, some cats just get really high calcium and we just don't know why. It just happens. So therefore, sometimes we do have to do more testing to try to rule out some of those other things to know what this might potentially be causing. But while we are waiting for those tests, we still have to do something, right? We can't just let this pet's calcium be very high That can cause lots of problems. That can cause um, their heart to slow down. It can cause seizures and cause tremors. So we want to make sure that we get it down as quickly as possible, especially before it starts putting calcium into other areas like the kidneys and lungs and things like that. So when we have those blood work changes and we have those clinical signs, uh, really the best thing is to hospitalize that pet. I do warn owners that if we know it's the toxin, that it can hang out their bloodstream for months. So this could potentially mean weeks to months of blood work and treatment, on and off hospitalization. Typically in the beginning, they only have to be hospitalized for a couple of days, but they could be re-hospitalized over and over again. So unfortunately, if we know it's from the toxin, they have to be in this for the long haul because just that one hospitalization is most likely not going to fix everything. And we have had a patient that's done that. We had a patient who was coming back over and over. When Dr. Bronk was here, she was managing this patient. And it was hospitalized, I think, three times, if I remember correctly. And it was hospitalized this multiple times over about two-month time period. So we want to make sure that we like try to make them understand that this is not going to be just like hospitalized and go home and they're great. This is going to be that they're going to be hospitalized and they're going to have to be doing follow-ups every week and potentially re-hospitalized over and over again. Luckily, that dog that Dr. Bronk saw did survive. If I remember correctly, I think she did get some kidney damage from it, but she did survive. So when we're hospitalized and we want to put them on IV fluids to help bring down that calcium as low as possible, we're actually going to want to put them on sodium chloride IV fluids, not LRS because LRS actually has calcium in it. So we want sodium chloride fluids. And then we're going to want to place a feeding tube to try to help give them the support of food. One, it's going to help you with giving some of your medications like that terrible, terrible tasting cholestyramine. Two, we need to give them aluminum hydroxide because that actually binds phosphorus and brings phosphorus levels down. And then also we're going to want to be giving them food to try to help bind a lot of that toxin as well help their intestines heal. One of the other things that can happen from this is they can get ulcers. So Mm -hmm. that'll help prevent ulcers too. Sometimes we'll give them steroids. This always seems counterintuitive to me. I'm like, why are we giving steroids to this toxin? That's not really a good reason why. But actually the reason why is because we want to stop the calcium from being taken from the bone and the intestines. And Mm -hmm. steroids actually do help that to stop happening. Furosemide is another one that we may use as well. Again, we think about we're giving fluids and furosemide does the exact opposite. Furosemide is a drug that helps like to remove as much fluid as possible. But our goal there is to try to help the kidneys get rid of the calcium from the urine. And then, you know, plus the cholestyramine that we talked about, you still want to give that as well. And all of these things have to be put into different time slots so that they're not all given together either, right? cholestyramine can't go with the aluminum hydroxide. So you're going to have to like really figure out what times to give things and when to feed them as well. So the prognosis on this really varies. They can't end up having long-term kidney damage. And obviously that's going to be not a very good prognosis, but there's no way for us to know that besides putting them through all of this and then months later reevaluating whether or not they ended up going to kidney failure or not. And not all of them will leave the hospital either. Some of them, their calcium would be so high, we just can't get it down. All right, so that's Coley for all Toxicity in a nutshell. This is my least favorite rodenticide because of all the problems with it and how hard it is to manage in our pets. So just when people ask about it, really like prevention is the key. Just keeping the rodenticides in a lockbox or having a professional coming out and telling that professional, hey, I have pets. We need some sort of pet-safe thing. And then otherwise, just having them bring the box with us or keeping the box at home so we know what they had gotten into if they had gotten into anything. So I'll talk about Ray's dog real quick. So Ray had this little eight pound rat terrier when I first met her. She had two of them. One was named Bessie and one's name was named Tessa. But Bessie was like a pig. Like she ate everything. I talk about things like putting stuff away in cabinets and stuff and like baby locks. Like that's one of the things I talked about on my explanation one that I just talked about for the clients about Halloween candies, keeping them in a locked area, preferably with a, a childproof lock. So we put childproof locks on all of the cabinets when we had moved in to her condo in California and to make sure that Bessie could not get into the cabinets because they would put their dog food at the bottom there and Bessie would get into the cabinets and she was just, like, just fat if she got into them. So we were really trying to slim her down. So... One day I came home, I worked all night. so like, I think that I was off at 6 a.m., worked all night. And then I went home and I I heard like a crunching noise. And I was like, what is going on? And I was like in the kitchen. I couldn't figure out what this crunching noise was coming from. And then I followed over to where it was. And then I opened up the cabinet and Bessie had gotten so skinny because we had you know, made her skinny from not eating all of this crap that she had and she was she got she was in the bag so she we had a big I think it was one of the 12 pound bags it was a full bag we just opened it so she had eaten about 10 pounds of food and she was only eight pounds at that time so I was like oh god so I had to like go take her down to the to the local ER clinic by me because I couldn't drive all the way back to the clinic that was near me and they took an x-ray and she literally was just full from like stomach to colon. So she had been eating probably all night long. So we made her vomit, but it was, I didn't even feed her for, I think, two days because she just had so much food in her abdomen. And then I had to give her bland diet because we were worried about her getting a pancreatitis. It was just, oh my gosh, it was a mess. And then we had to get a better safety locking mechanism for her uh, dog food we were dating at this point, we were not married. So it's like, you need a better locking system for this. So we got her a better way to keep Bessie out of it. Man. It's always fun you go to another pet clinic and you're like, I'm a technician and my dog ate all of my dog food all night. Yeah. All right, guys. I hope you have a great week. And um, I think next week we're going to be talking about quilling, like porcupine quilling. And we'll talk about some of the Uh, repercussions of that. All right. Thanks guys.